What's up, everybody? Happy Friday. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Once again, you're listening to the Entrepreneurial Web. I'm your host, Jeremiah Fox. Before I introduce my guest today, the message of the week. Something our martial arts instructor used to say, we trained under the same uh, sensei professor for quite a while. Uh, The best story you could read is the one you write yourself. Do you remember him saying that? No. I do. Many times. Stuck with me. Yeah. I don't write very well, but we'll we'll talk more (laughs) about that. With that, I would like to introduce good friend, neighbor, training partner. He's a freelance writer, a food enthusiast, a man of many, many talents. Um, So many talents. Handsome, too. Thank you. This is making me look bad today. (laughs) Uh, With that, I'd like to welcome Joshua David Stein. He's so good, they had to name him twice. That's, that's right. Actually, Google, there's another Josh Stein who was like a real estate attorney. Fuck, fuck him. And I was like, stop stealing all my stop Google clown. Yeah. So, Pora Corallo, welcome to the show. I've invited him. <laughs> I was going to talk in uh, Portuguese English. I hate it so much. It was your pleasure uh, to be on the show. Uh, very remarkable to have you here today. <laughs> you understand that? Fodesi. So um, we met uh, training at Sun Dojo together, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, but you you grew up kind of in a dojo, like your house was like an Aikido den. Yeah, I grew up, um, my stepdad, for all intents and purposes, um, ran an Aikido dojo outside of Philadelphia. And um, so I trained there all the time, like six days a week, two hours a day. And then when we got home, it wasn't like the training stopped. It was just like, and now you will be training by chopping wood and like painting the house and going to the range. You know, it's like now you're gonna watch or wax all my cars. Yeah, that's kind of it. Uh, and and uh, you went to NYU, correct? I did. And you also studied ballet. That's also correct. Yes. Um, and your degree is in. <laughs> Useless. Did you, did you get one? I did, okay. and it's useless. I mean, it's <laughs> degree useless. and useless. Yes. I like that. That's I went to a school at NYU called Gallatin, where you could just design your own major. Yeah, yeah. And my major was um, ethnomusicology, which is not a pointless major. It's not. Um, it's not. But trying to find a job as an ethnomusicologist was not happening for me. And um, my my thesis was on... <laughs> The Lament in Post-World War II Popular Music, which basically means that I just wrote a uh, thesis on cat power and the yeah, yeah, yeahs, yeah. like, and that's not getting me anywhere. Were you trying to do it in the context of, like, Western ethnomusicology? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, like, so much music, ethnomusicology for our viewers and listeners is the sociological study of music. So, whereas musicology is about music theory and that kind of stuff. Ethnomusicology is like, how does it fit within the context of society? Most ethnomusicology is, a lot of ethnomusicology is either um, non-Western or subcultures within America. Like my hero and the reason why I did it um, was an ethnomusicologist named Alan Lomax who traveled through the deep South with his dad, John Lomax. Um, And I read uh, a book on the Mississippi Delta Blues when I was like 16. I was like, I want to do that. Yeah. Um, turns out that's tough to do. 
So when I graduated NYU, um, I had started doing ballet at NYU and while I was in college, because I don't know if anyone remembers a gym called Crunch, which I think is oh, still around. Um, the grip on, yeah, the, on, the, on the, the logo. Yeah, yeah, very pop pop logo. Um, there was a ballet class called Ballet Boot Camp there. And I walked by and I fell in love with the teacher. She's like the most, like I come from the suburbs of Philadelphia. Not to say there's not beautiful women in the suburbs of Philadelphia. There are. There are. But um, she was the most beautiful person I had ever seen, ever in my life. And I was in love and so i started taking this ballet class with her to try to like just win her yeah to win <laughs> her over and um it worked it was a messed up it was it was a complicated relationship she was 38 i was 17. this is a kids program okay let's is it a kids <laughs> program <laughs> let's get dirty now i had no idea this was coming guys this is great uh, all right you she was 38, you were 17. Yeah, she was, um, she's great. We started doing ballet. You know, I had done martial arts growing up and I had wrestled and all this stuff. But then the idea to be um, physically active and like express yourself emotionally was, and it was a really tough workout, muscles that I had never yeah. used. Um, and there's this beautiful woman there. It was like too much. And then, um, we started going to other like actual dance classes, like outside of crunch. And then there was a live pianist. And it's like, are you kidding? You get to work out, dance, and there's live music? Like it couldn't, it couldn't be better. Um, so that's how I got into ballet. And then when I graduated school, it was either do I pursue dance? I was more also like a modern, I ended up doing more modern stuff like with Streb and like acrobatic stuff partially because I don't have great um, arches, which is like quite important when you're doing ballet. Um, it was kind of between doing that or I'd gotten an internship at Harper's Magazine. Um, and it was like, do I want to, do I see myself in 10 years as a writer or trying to make it as a dancer? And I chose to be a And writer. how did how did that come about? How did you end up just doing like an internship? At Harper's? Yeah. Um, my friend, Carmel is an artist and was going to Cooper Union. NYU and Cooper Union are right next to yeah. each other. Cooper was free at the time. And so like all the kids who got into Cooper were like the smart, like they were the best at whatever art, basically. Very hard to get into. One time I went to uh, Carmel's house um, for some holiday and her family is quite um, illustrious. Her dad is an architect, Moisha Safdi. And her mom was good friends, is good friends with Samantha Power, who later went on to become the, um, she, wrote, I was, she wrote a book called um, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide, uh, which I think won a Pulitzer, won a bunch wow. of prizes. Later she went on to become under Obama, the US ambassador to the UN. She was like, she's fucking dope. Yeah. She's like, cool, she's awesome. She's a family friend. Basically she was working on a book and she said, do you want to help me research it? And I was like, yes. So I helped her research that. And that was at a moment where if you dropped like, yeah, I work with Samantha Power. Yeah. It was like, yes, yeah. you got a little this currency. Interest. Yeah. Also just to note um, a place of tremendous privilege to be able to have a non-paid internship for six months. Like I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't have support from my family. So I'm not taking that 
in any way for granted. So I wanted to note that. Nice. Um, so yeah, and then that kind of was my, then I got sucked up. And then studying, like attempting to be an ethnomusicologist yeah. and do a lot of writing as well. Yeah, NYU was um, interesting because um, it kind of offers as good an education or as bad an education as you want. <laughs> like no one is, it's not guaranteed you'll learn anything. And for the most part, I feel like I learned, I just developed contacts with people. Like I've been in New York for 20 years. A lot of those people have gone on to do wonderful things and I know them and they know me and that's been very helpful. Um, in terms of like academic rigor, it wasn't there. Yeah. Um, but there was this one track that you could get sucked up in, which was called um, expository writing, which is basically nonfiction essays and that kind of thing. So I had taken that class the entire time I was in college. So mm -hmm. I graduated already thinking that I wanted to, knowing I was good with words and kind of wanting to get into that. Very cool. But initially I was so, I very much wanted to be like hard news, political science, that kind of thing. Pretty soon I realized that like my tastes in terms of a lifestyle um, don't, match my income level <laughs> and uh i like eating out at restaurants i like drinking i like traveling i like all now of now we're getting things. into the dirt <laughs> oh, and i was like well if i want to be able to do any of this i need to subsidize i i need to write and get it paid and someone else needs to pay for this because i can't pay for this um so i ended up writing about food and travel and like luxury lifestyle and uh Good that's, move. yeah i mean i think when i'm on my deathbed and the question is like, did you do anything meaningful? It'll be like, meh. I went to Belize a bunch of times. I mean, <laughs> we're only 10 minutes in and that, there's, a, there's a lot there. Yeah, great. We can spend the rest <laughs> of the time unpacking it. There's a lot there. I, I actually wanted to do a, a PhD. I was considering doing a PhD in ethnomusicology. Oh, really? Because I've, I've got a, an undergrad and a master's in performance. Yeah. And in percussion. And, you know, there's a lot. Before I was going to go back to Brazil and uh, go back to the favelas and try to remember that stuff. Jesus Christ. <laughs> my brother's going to love this. <laughs> uh, it should be noted that my ex-wife is Brazilian, yeah. so I also he actually, speak he actually Portuguese. Speech, speaks Portuguese. Speech I, Portuguese. I speak Portuguese English. Um, so it's very frustrating to <laughs> hear. Um, but I and I was considering like definitely like South America or yeah. or West Africa. The thing though is is like in terms of a career, it's mostly like academia. Yeah, and those jobs are really hard to get. And what I found studying it at NYU, they didn't have it on undergrad, but they do have it on the graduate level. And so I was taking a bunch of graduate level ethnomusicology classes, and I don't think I care about anything that much. You know, like they get so into it yeah. and it's like, who gives a fuck? Like, really, I don't care. Well, I, I like your angle. Like I was thinking, too, I, I wanted to um, study, you know, like South American and, and Caribbean and, and African music, but just to tie it back in yeah. to, you know, American ethnic music, like the way that, the, you know, Lomaxes did. Back yeah. Today. I studied them a lot, you know, when yeah. I was in school and, and listened to a lot of those recordings. Um, but kind of like a more contemporary version, especially like all the offshoots of how, you know, blues and jazz turned into all these other things. Yeah. Um, 
And, and, and you know, I, I think it would be an interesting topic, I think. But I feel like People that would be it, into it. it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And I feel like as a, I feel happy that I've become a journalist and a writer more because um, I'm not writing, obviously, academic papers, but I am trying to write um, in a way that's engaging on the subject matter that a broad audience will want to read. Whereas I don't mean to denigrate at all academic papers because that's so much of what my own work draws from, but the audience is so limited, yeah. you know? I mean, to me, it's kind of like the, it's not a perfect parallel, but it's like haute couture versus like ready to wear. It's like haute couture is like the ideal, I guess, model and the source of a lot of inspiration, but very closed off and almost like exclusive most people can't afford or un even understand it on yeah. that level but it filters down into like more popular um expressions so like yeah i'm happy to write about i don't love writing about music anymore but like um i like writing in a way that gives the public a little bit of in like you you get 20 percent of the detail but 150 percent of the audience you know what i mean yeah Kind of like the show we like to be informative yet entertaining we like to entertain everyone so. informative yet superficial <laughs> jeremiah story. and total misappropriation <laughs> but i don't give a fuck all right we got to take our first break everybody hang tight we'll be right back you're listening to talk radio nyc at www.talkradio.nyc now broadcasting 24 hours a day Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Inning. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.
my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know you can do I better. I still got to send you this guy's stuff because he was hilarious. Welcome back, everybody. Again, you're listening to Entrepreneur Web. I'm your host, Jeremiah Fox. Just antagonizing my guest today, dear friend, training partner, and freelance writer, Joshua David Stein. So nice little background on how you like meandered, yeah. you know, from ethnomusicology to ballet to working for a magazine. Yes. Um, what were, what was the hustle like? Did you, have you always been like freelance or did you ever have like, you worked like you had a job at, at a spot as a um, writer? Yeah, I mean, I, for a long time I was an editor. Mm-hmm. So I was on the masthead. Um, kind of I thought that was a path I wanted to take like as a as a writer slash editor you kind of have to choose um I was a senior editor at Departures which is a luxury lifestyle magazine um well first of all my big break if you want to call it that which have you made it yeah I've made it (laughs) I've made well I've made it I made it I have made it I think I spend my day doing what I want to do and I get you know but I worked for a website called Gawker when I was quite young, when I was like in my 20s, 22, 23. And this was like at the height of Gawker's, uh, Gawker is like a media, was a media website in Manhattan. Can they see us? They can see us. Gawker was a media website in Manhattan um, that later grew to be. I mean, the people that are watching can see us. I know. So no, if they're listening, no, they're no, listening, they can't see us. They can imagine. Um, I got a job as an editor. Uh, at first I ran a travel website and then I got a job as an editor for this website called Gawker, which was like quite feared and quite powerful at the time. And it was run by this guy, Nick Denton. Um, later, much later, it was destroyed by Hulk Hogan and Peter Thiel in like a very litigious conflagration. But at the time, um, it was like, if you were an editor at Gawker, you were like feared and powerful and it was just, huge ego trip to be honest which like i think fucked me later like on. feared by who like like we would do guys on the street or no like media <laughs> it, like it was very focused on media stuff like that guy we, we saw on 30th Street. yeah that guy's like hey don't you know i worked for, i worked for gawker 10 years ago yo I, every time i walk down that block now i'm like this like hands out like shoulders back, ready i'm just like um, make a move. <laughs> I started actually doing it to people that run up and just yeah. screaming in their face. Well, they did it to me. Yeah. Um, so I worked for this website and uh, that parlayed into like a bunch of other on staff positions. Um, kind of, I, I would say I reached the peak. I was the editor in chief of this magazine called Black Book, which is like a arts and culture magazine. But also at the time that I was becoming an editor, so many print publications were folding. This was like 2000, I don't know, uh, like nine to like 15 or something. I was in that world. So I really was like hopscotching from failing publication to failing publication. And then- And that was, that was just because of de- the rise of digital. Like- rise of digital, those models weren't working. Um, it was bloated, like for a ton of reasons. Mm-hmm. But yeah, online, I think, was a big part of it. I started my career online. Then I thought to make it, I had to be make it in print. I had to make it in print. I made it in print just as print was pretty much ending. And there's been a lot of um, evolution since then, but that was kind of the story. Then I had, um, I have two sons who are seven and nine. And um, then I felt like I needed a real grown-up job. 
So I started taking jobs that were high paying, but I didn't really love like at startups. And um, I worked for Time Inc. At, for a while on the advertising side as a creative director. Oh, fun. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, well, that was the last, oh no, then I, <laughs> then I took another job for two years actually um, at Fatherly as the editor at large. All right, yeah. Um, meanwhile, I was trying to hustle on the side to keep my freelance career going because I knew ultimately I wanted to make that jump. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I was ramping up this one train and trying to ramp up a train on a parallel track so I could jump and have minimal disruption. Nice um, metaphor. Like I've thought that. about that a lot. That was good. Because it was kind of hard for a while and there's a lot of like personal costs to be honest have a full-time job and be doing this freelancing it's like well where's family where are these other things in your life i finally made it like i finally made that jump but you know it was rough it, i was overextended for years and years yeah you know and what what year was that when you finally kind of crossed over to the dark side you know all freelance or yeah. corporate all freelance like uh Two years ago. Two weeks ago. Yeah, two, I'm still, I'm looking for a job. If anyone knows anything. He's going to be washing dishes yeah. in my restaurant tonight. Oh. Um. The, the, what changed for me is that I started, um, I realized that I, I was a restaurant critic for a long time and I was doing all this freelance right. stuff. Well, I wanted to know how you got into like the food scene. Cause you like, I mean, you've done yes. some pretty big stuff in terms of food. Yeah. You know, like chilling with Bourdain and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. all true. Um, True. but, oh, we'll get to that. But like, oh. basically I realized I reached the cap of how much I could make kind of, th there's no way I was going to make more per word or per, per piece. I could always do more, but it wasn't, um, viable really in terms of my life. So I kind of made the transition to doing books, which take the, it's a longer timeline, like almost a two year timeline a much bigger payout per project, but you have fewer projects, of course. But it kind of ladders up to a more sustainable lifestyle with like, if I have three or four of those projects a year, I can do it. Supple supplemented as well by write what, writing what I want to write mm -hmm. as opposed to writing what I need to write. Um, when I was at Gawker, I did a series of videos. I wrote about food for Gawker, restaurants. I started out as a restaurant guy, like restaurant and nightlife. And I did a video called the grid skipper guide to Soho. It was like a David Attenborough riff where I would go to these different neighborhoods. And Tony reached out, Tony Bourdain reached out and he's like, oh, because that was sold as a, no reservations, which was on at the time had bought pre and post roll for that. So like in his orbit. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he saw the video and he reached out to me and he's like, this is great. I was like, fucking Tony Bourdain. Yeah. Like, what? This is awesome. That's when you made it. <laughs> I felt like yeah. it was very sweet of him to reach out. And he had no reason to. He had no reason to, of course. Um, but then he was like, you should come meet my production company, CPC, um, 0.0, which I did. And I'm friends with friends. They're probably not watching. Um, Business friends, like we don't we don't it's hang a popular out. Popular show. What are you trying yeah. to say? Chris Collins is probably not watching it. Um, we're we're like work friends, and we've known each other for a long time. Chris, if you're watching, call in. Call yeah. in the studio. <laughs> Give this guy um, some help. 
but but yeah so then that's how i got to know tony and then um there was a program called mind of a chef or something with dave chang yeah it was on netflix yeah, yeah mind of a chef mind of a chef yeah that's also zpz i think okay so at one point i was writing for eater which is a restaurant website and i went over to san sebastian spain for um a, mm, uh, for some just cured meat <laughs> it's a conference called gastronomica which is like all of the yeah the new I've seen video of it. Yeah, yeah it was great and tony was there dave chang was there um it's, those types of events from an entrepreneurial standpoint it's like the content that i made wasn't really worth anything but for me personally to be seen in that area at those events at those parties like was tremendously helpful from a career standpoint yeah. it's like that's where i got to know tony and and more and like Dave and like and met the publisher of Fiden who I later did books with and it's like you're in that little bubble and people look around and they're in the bubble and then they see you in the bubble they're like oh you got it and you're like I don't but I'm right. here um and then over the years I, I you know did a bunch of stories with Tony and like um he was just a very warm uh, wonderful guy who also rolled. Yes. Quite well. I never rolled with him, but I remember, you know, you have cauliflower ear. I remember the last interview or last time we like spent time together, his ear was so jacked because he had just, I think he had just gotten it drained. <laughs> like flabby. So intense. It was still bandaged. It looked like Van Gogh. <laughs> right. Handsome. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. And you you did a you did a piece for Henzo's too. You said right years. Yeah, one of my first published pieces, I think. Um, when was that? Two thousand eight, nine. Um, was he training there at the time? I don't remember seeing him. It was this piece for Maxim. Basically, okay. So pursuant to what I said earlier about wanting to live a lifestyle that I couldn't really afford, or like. Yeah, that. Um, and also, like, my favorite thing about being a journalist is these opportunities to talk to people and go into these situations that mm. civilians don't have. Not only do I get into the situation, but, like, I have an excuse to talk and, like, be there and, like, I have cover. Yeah. So my cover for this was, like, I was going to compare ballet, like, intense ballet training and intense MMA, or not MMA, um, I guess it was MMA because I did Muay Thai too. Muay Thai, yeah. I didn't combine those, but I didn't know enough at the time. Anyway, that's the first jujitsu I'd ever done. And so I spent like two weeks training ballet, like three hours a day. And then like two weeks doing Henzo's like two hours a day. For me, it was like a lot. Um, and I remember the first day and this, like, as you can, as you know, from having trained with me, this has always stayed with me. Like, um, I didn't know, you know, you, you do a gi beginner class and no one comes out and tells you like, you can't slam someone <laughs> like that's, you don't know. I didn't know. I know where this is going. Yeah. Just the fact that like, there's some other poor white belt and I was in, um, I, I had, uh, I was in half guard on top and he wasn't like unlacing his legs. So I just picked him up and just fucking slammed him on his back. And, uh, I got a talking to. Yeah. But I didn't know. You know, it's like, 
I don't know if I lack common sense. I might, but <laughs> how are you supposed to know those things? That's what, um, that was my big thing about like, um, it's never crossed my mind. I don't know. Really? Yeah. I've never been like, I wouldn't want, I, I could just slam this guy right now. I always just thought like, there's another way to dismember him. Oh no. For me, <laughs> there's like, a nicer way. Yeah. To to get this person to capitulate. See, this is I'm glad we're transitioning into I think it's DJJ. Well, we got, well let's do this. Okay, let's okay. take a break yeah. and pull up. When we come back, we're going to talk a jujitsu. So hang tight, everybody. We'll be right back. God. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Okay, everybody, welcome back. It was time now to talk about the jiu-jitsu craft. Karamo. Okay. Pick up where you were. This is my question. <laughs> this is, this is uh, something that I've always struggled with in terms of jiu-jitsu, or like any combat sports, really, but really jiu-jitsu because of where we trained, I think. Like, to me, yeah, slamming someone is... It, it, to me, I don't think about it as like nice or not nice. 
So if he had done it to me, I don't think I would have been upset. And I didn't have any like bad intention when I did it to him whatsoever. I find that like generally when I roll, I have, I never have bad, I don't have bad intentions. And I very rarely like feel bad intentions from someone else, even if they're going really hard. It's like, oh, we're going hard now. Like it's not, you're not mad. Like I, if someone is mad at me, I like, it's something I have a really hard time with. If someone's upset with me, I have a really hard time with it, like emotionally. Mm. And it's been a frustrating journey for me because I feel like, as you know, from rolling with me, I don't think I'm out of control, but I do roll harder than at least where we trained before. And I found it really tough to deal with that. Like, I think I pissed people off. And it's like, to me, it didn't make sense because I felt like, oh, we're, we're just rolling. You know, like maybe it's that I don't pick up on the social, on the cues that they're giving while rolling, but it's like, oh, you're going to go hard. I'm going to go hard. Or even like, oh, like you're, I don't know. Like I never have bad intentions rolling. I never want to hurt anyone. I'm so kind of like friendly, you know, but when we're rolling, it's like, yeah, I like using my weight. I like using my strength and all this stuff. And I didn't come to jujitsu to like make believe. It's like we're rolling. Mm. Um, and so, I don't know. It's been like a journey for me to, which I'm still going through. I don't know. I, I mean, I think the core and the essence of martial arts in general yeah. in particular jujitsu is is to go deep inside yourself and like yeah. really assess uh behaviors um you know what most of what we do is is habit you know yeah. it's like 90 percent of what we do is habit so you get to really see that because it shows up you have this habit of like moving a certain way yeah and it like it, sometimes it's beneficial and you're like oh that's good i'll keep that but a lot of it's like oh that sucks every time i do that like yeah. i just get i get body slammed by the freaking white belt <laughs> yeah you know what i'm saying um so you get to you get to assess that physically but you also get to assess that like you know on a conscious level like, yeah emotionally and everything um and and i think um there there is a certain level of um not intuition, but just reflectiveness when you when you start to consider like the other person. Yeah. And, like you're like, yeah, I'd like to I mean it's never bothered me. I've always enjoyed training with you. That's why I invited you yeah. down to my dungeon <laughs> many times. Yeah, I feel like I'm good with the can we mention SD on the show? Yeah, of All course. Right. You say whatever you want. Okay. You I was <laughs> I was good at Sundojo with like people who are clearly um like, I guess weaker, no, but not in a negative way. Like, you know, like we rolled with a lot of people from a whole range of backgrounds and, and like women who were like in their 50s, whatever. If I know clearly like, okay, now in my mind, gentle, yeah. this is my, we're gently rolling. I'm good with someone who's bigger, like Ryder or those guys or Jamie, because we'll call that one Hyder. Hyder, 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 Yeah, I'm good with him because he's bigger, and it's like, okay, this is a dynamic. 
I know little guys like me scare you because I'm like little guys like you muscular but i'm good with you because you're i, I make noises you do make noises <laughs> inappropriate jokes like <laughs> but you're but you i like rolling with because you're dynamic and i feel like you you're like oh yeah you're not you're just being dynamic and i'm dynamic and this is like how it's going and everyone's cool with it i think it's hard when you're going from like uh when there's someone like matched with you or usually what would happen is i was matched with someone and they were usually a little bit better than i was like or a lot better than I was. You are that way. Mike, microphone Mike is that way. Jeremiah was like that. You know? I'm Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremy. Oh, so, you don't so. even remember my name. Come oh, on. Jamie, come on. I, I love your show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I will say that just a small amount that I rolled at Henzo's, I like that dynamic because that was like the established thing. Like, you're going to go there. You're going to go hard, but it's not even... It's hard, but in control. Yeah, I don't feel like it's that much harder. I think there, there you, there's a lot more strategy. Like you get with some of the young new guys, and they're they're kind of hard. But yeah. I just don't work with them. But like, you know, the guys that I've been training with, they're um, they they're it doesn't matter their size. Like some of them are smaller than me, and they just like totally crush me. But it's it's their it's their technique. Yeah, it's not they're not using strength. You know. Yeah, you know what I the thing that has stuck with me from the one time I went, I think I told you is like man, I have to pay attention to underhooks. Like, <laughs> I was not. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Like, I'm not going to, it's like, then I'm just yeah. like, on my back. Exactly. It's like, this again? <laughs> <sighs> Here again. So yeah. that was. Well, once they do that to you like a thousand times, then you pay attention to the yeah. underhook. You're like, I, if I, you know. And There's then- one guy, this one feeling I had, there was this one wrestler guy who's a little older, but like jacked and clearly had been a wrestler. And he was just, just a feeling of like uh, feeling his body, like just put me down again. And it was like, oh yeah, underhook. I wish I had fucking underhooks right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I would say that like the, my, the physical, I get a lot of joy out of jujitsu and rolling. I actually, what I get joy out of is that flow, like that rolling flow. Um, I get a lot of joy tinged with like fear, I guess, that I enjoy con- I enjoyed sitting with, um, with not in a macho way, but like, how am I going to measure up to these guys? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been the biggest, the biggest challenge for me has been that emotional, like social aspect. Like I really, it's very important to me that I don't come across like an asshole. Like I don't want to cause any pain. I don't want to be an asshole to anyone. So when I do things that are that I don't see that I'm being an asshole and I'm clearly getting feedback that people are upset with me, it's been a real like trying to figure out how to deal with that, how to make amends. Like, um, actually, the biggest thing that I think Sandojo taught me, and even rolling with you in like an informal way, is in my mind this uh, something I struggle with all the time is like is this right or wrong? Everything, like, is there an external right and an external wrong? Are there rules that I don't know that I'm breaking? And so often that's to the, that's to the detriment sort of, I I rely on that because I don't have a real good gauge of like, how do I feel? Like, how does it feel to do it? So trying to realize like, oh, there's, there, yeah, there are some unwritten rules, but also like, 
trust yourself, trust how you feel, trust in being open to other people, how they're responding, you know? Like, when I fuck up Tim's arm, he's like, you fucking idiot! It sucks. <laughs> I was sending him so many like nice emojis after that. But that's been my journey. I don't know, but I mean, I feel like for you, you don't have, you kind of go into these situations and it seems like you're pretty at ease. Like you don't have that much anxiety, social anxiety about it. You're friends yeah. with the guys. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that comes down to like growing up in the restaurant industry. Yeah. You just have to like really check it. Um, and and it, it's like, you know, like a muscle, the more you do it, like the stronger yeah. it gets. So I have a, a, a pretty decent ability, I think, to just like, turn emotions off yeah. and not not stress everything that's happening like especially like when it happens just yeah. be able to be like just like yeah. kind of put a lid on everything sleep on it reassess later um yeah the other thing i was going to say about it i think it really just depends on the culture of the place that you're in whether it's a martial arts school yeah your workplace like wherever like kind of whatever is being uh emphasized there is like the value system yeah. will dictate that. So you'll go to other places where they would say to you, oh, you was not pulling hard enough. Yeah. You always have to be like a heel man and yeah. come at me. A heel man, a like heel, heel hook. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and so there you might, it, you would be on the other side of the spectrum where yeah. you're like, now I'm not fulfilling, you know, and then you got to deal with that emotional uh, contact. So, you know, it, it's all about like finding the spot that's, that, that you feel the most appropriate yeah. at and home at. And, and, you know, somebody like me, I can kind of do that anywhere. Like I was very comfortable at Sundojo and, and I liked, uh, you know, Professor Carol and I would talk about that, that ability to oscillate between training partners, like you said, you know, yeah. I work with you. And then next I'm working with like a 50 year old woman that's like, you know, 95 pounds. And then like next I got Tim and, you yeah. know, and just being able to be in that moment and, and adjust to each one, which is, yeah. it's not easy. It's certainly not easy. It's, it's a skill that like, I'd say most don't have. And um, it, you just have to work at it yeah. really, really hard. Something that I loved about the pandemic though, I mean, it's terrible and like, just, I know that sounds terrible, but like, oh, boy, that so many of my interactions, like I started rolling with you on a personal, non-structured way in your base in the basement and then i started going up to birdman's at indian larry's and that was yeah you had a mat fee I'm supposed to talk about that. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> it's over. but it's over yeah um and that was also like so casual and like they weren't friends but it was like we're all equal now i box with this guy mitch he's a trainer but i hold pads for him and he holds pads for me and it's like there's no exchange of money it's just like we're just doing it as people yeah. and i love so much of my life has kind of become like these, there's no external structures to it. Yeah. And it's been so rich, you know, in that way. You know, and Birdman talked about it, that there was even a saturation, you know, in jujitsu. And, and now it feels a lot more like it did in the early days, yeah. like in the 90s when, when things were just starting off and people just took a, there was a lot more like self-accountability yeah. and, and, and just more commitment because what you saw during the pandemic was that, you know, the only people that stuck with it were the people that were just like, I am 100% committed yeah. to this. Like for me, it was like, I couldn't imagine like without it. And there, yeah. when it was like, well, you could die. I was like, well, tell take my chances. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to die anyways. But like, I'd rather, it was almost like I'd rather not live than without jujitsu. Yeah, yeah. It's just okay. like, I need it in my fucking life. Yeah. Like every day, like 
I, you know, no matter how like awful I'm feeling, if I get a session in, I'm yeah. like, I'm just alive again. Like no sleep, whatever. It doesn't matter. Like yeah. a broken toe. <laughs> I'm like, there's a lot of joy yeah, in it. I have to yeah. say. Yeah, it's amazing. All right. One more break. We'll be right back everybody and pick back up with this and its implications into professional life. Oh yeah. Great. Oh, yeah. So hang tight. We'll be right back. This You're all listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Alrighty, last set. Let's make it our best. Okay, gonna you know, wrap this puppy up. So, for me, training uh, even before the pandemic, particularly before, and getting like that kind of framework and you know concepts of commitment and you know fortitude, perseverance that like got me through some tough patches before the pandemic, but hundred percent got me through the pandemic in terms of you know professional life. Mm-hmm. My 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 uh, business persona. <laughs> um, can you comment to the same for you? Has it, has it helped you in some ways professionally? Um, I think the biggest thing I've gotten from jujitsu, not just in on the mat, but, and not just professionally, but personally, but all of these, was Professor Carroll talked about the jujitsu spiral, that there's never an end. There's just a move and then another move out of that, another move out of that. Basically, um, not backing yourself. It's, it's not a matter 
really of not backing yourself into a corner. It's seeing the opportunities from wherever you are. And obviously the pandemic has been tough for everyone and for me. I mean, what did it do to the writing scene? Well, I was very lucky that I had already transitioned to doing mostly books. When the pandemic first hit, there were a lot of assignments. I had a lot of assignments because you were writing about the end of like this shutting down and this shutting down or like sex work going online or this restaurant closing or whatever. So there's a lot of content about the pandemic itself. After a certain point, people got tired of hearing about like it's shutdown stories. Terrible, right? And then it's like, well, now what, you're, what are you going to write about? But luckily I had signed up enough book projects that I was finishing up those. And that kind of like kept me busy through the year. Um, but the way that this idea of the jujitsu spiral, I think, works for me professionally is on a meta level in terms of broad shifts in my career path from restaurant critic to cookbook author, children's book author, you know, now doing all this other stuff. It's like, I know that whatever I'm doing in five years isn't going to look like what I'm doing now. And that's fine with me. I'm, I have faith that I will find my way. It's going to be the next move. Yeah. The next move. But how it works in a micro level is, you know, when you're writing, um, I'm a writer or I'm a co-author, sometimes an author, sometimes an editor, but now mostly those two, author and co-author. And there are all of these roadblocks that are put up. Roadblocks is not the right term. These challenges you face, whether it's... What's a booby traps? It's like, well... An editor will say, we don't like this, or a co-author will say, well, we don't like this structure, or you'll be in a negotiation with an agent and there's a contract which doesn't work for you. And that is, that's like rolling. And so if you hold on to your position too long, or if you just, you're grasping at it, um, then you back yourself into a corner. And the idea of always like letting yourself work from where you are into a a better position or a different position, or maybe you're not going to get to the end position now, but maybe if you go, you know, maybe if you can just find some movement somewhere, you'll, you'll have faith that it'll keep on rolling. And a higher percentage of success. Yeah. And I think like that has been, I remember when Professor Carroll said that, or like, expose us to this concept of the spiral. And I still have not really gained mastery of it in on the mat, but I've gotten a lot better off the mat. Yeah, when you body slam somebody, that's kind of the end of the spiral. <laughs> I will say that it, so I don't know if you, I feel like you're very dynamic. You mentioned that Henzo's, they were like, don't accept, like, don't accept positions, suboptimal positions. Um, I feel like one of my strengths as a, as a judoka is like, I'm pretty comfortable being uncomfortable in whether it's like a submission attempt or like, okay, well, I'm back in like, this is where I am. This is not great, but it's not the end of the road. Um, And that that's by far the biggest thing I've gotten out of jujitsu. Nice. That's great. It reminds me of, are you familiar with Simon Sinek? Business, personality, like keynote speaker, author, everything. Um, he's got this whole thing on the infinite game yeah. in terms of business. He did a lot of stuff with the military, a lot of writing with the military. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, some of, like, he's got another book called Leaders Eat Last and yeah, hanging with like a battalion or whatever. And 
was kind of blown away by the fact that like the higher ranks were always yeah. the last to eat like all yeah. the, all the lower ranks to eat first so. but this idea of the infinite game it's like there's two ways to approach it where there's like the finite version where like you win there's like you win or you lose you know yeah. it's kind of like some zero where the infinite game is just like business is commerce is always happening it's happened since the beginning of human history you yeah know? and you exchange for stuff but it's not going anywhere so like you can either stay in it somehow yeah like doesn't matter like you you have to kind of adjust your your, your gauge for what you consider success at times so like take a pandemic for example yeah. you know, nobody saw that coming but like you you saw a lot of people extract themselves out and they won't go back you know yeah. this is too much or you can just like adjust like you're talking you know and just find a vantage point to like increase your odds even if it's just a little bit it, it's never like i won you know there's no submission and like they tap and like, yeah they, they, you know it's, it's just endless roll yeah it's just the spiral you're always in it um and and i kind of learned about the two around the same time yeah like, oh, but i think like when it comes to like professional life and business the way that i the way that i internalize the spiral is like I don't grasp, I try not to grasp onto like the, these identities of what I want to, want to be or wanted right. to become or, um, and kind of let, and who knows, like I envy, or I envied a little bit less now that I'm like actually making a living doing this, but I envied people who like just worked their way up the, <laughs> sorry, the masthead, you know, like they had their path. Can't be called on the show. Post COVID. <laughs> um, and where it's like, I look back at my narrative and like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And I'm coming to terms with that that's okay. I think that's great. I mean, yeah. mine's the same way. And I like, I actually value that where, yeah. when people are like, you know, I get interviewed and they're like, how did you end up in this position? And I'm like, well, like, just, yeah. I feel like there's a, for me, there's a trade-off in the sense that like, I'm maybe not as well established as I would like to be sure. in my individual field. But like, again, going back to like the right and wrong thing externally, it's like, those are external measures. How do I feel about where I am? And I find when I let go of those external things, and this is of course trite and like everyone knows, but when I let go of those external things and check in with myself, it's like, I'm pretty happy with what I get to do, you know? Yeah. Every day. That's great. That's a great way to end. Great way to end the show, the week, start the new month all this fancy, fancy stuff. Um, if people want to check out your stuff, learn more about you, where's the best place? They can't. JoshuaDavidStein.com. Or just Google me. That's why I have three names, he's, so I can be Googled. He's like, just Google me. He's that fucking confident. <laughs> gonna, the first thing is going to be an article about a guy getting body slammed in and so is my Yeah, own. by some like freelance journalist. <laughs> right. like, this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I've well, had back problems for you, right? Don't worry, I'll get him back. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank man. you, Jeremiah. Awesome. I've invited him on the show several times. He finally took me up on it. That's how famous he is and feels so privileged. Jeremiah's version of inviting is like, yo, you're around on Friday. <laughs> right? I don't know what you're, maybe? What do you want? He's like, are we trading? And I'm like, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad it, we finally got it together. And hopefully we get to do it again sometimes. Yes. Uh, so, you know, Pora, Corello. Oh, Never gonna forget this one. Gonna remember this show. Do you know this Parde and Sheme Osaku? No. You stop breaking my balls. <laughs> Never. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Can't do it. All right. Everybody, have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.
Peace. Great. Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.